0: In our subconscious minds, we think old is decrepit, bent over, (laughs) whatever. So I do try to push back against the toxic ageism that is uh, infusing our culture.
1: Priscilla Long has written an eye opening book about thriving in old age. Her optimistic outlook on life is infectious, and the stories she tells are inspiring and deeply engaging. Hello again. Welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. My name is Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and the stories behind human longevity. This episode is brought to you in association with Clinique La Prairie, the award-winning spa clinic and pioneering health and wellness destination nestled on the shores of Lake Geneva in Montreux, Switzerland. Combining preventative medicine with bespoke lifestyle and nutrition plans, Clinique La Prairie offers a holistic approach to living fuller, healthier, and longer lives. Silla Long is a prolific and award-winning author of science, poetry and creative nonfiction. She is based in the US city of Seattle and her latest book is Dancing with the Muse in Old Age, combining an understanding of the science with real-life experiences to help its readers improve their chances of enjoying a satisfying, dynamic, happy, productive time – as they grow older. Priscilla, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Peter. It's good to be here.
1: It's really good to talk to you. I'm going to start with a question that, in fact, at the beginning of the book, you pose for yourself, and that is, why focus on aging?
0: Well, the first and main reason is that my next birthday will be 8.080. And I thought, coming into this New area of life. I should be educated. I should educate myself. I should know the science of aging and as much as possible. I mean, there's a lot of it. I should not just go along with kind of stereotypes or things you hear on the street. A lot of, there's a lot of misinformation out there. So, you know, for in the first place, I really wanted to know about, for example, most old people are happy. That's science. That's not my opinion. I'm a pretty happy person, but I'm very interested to know that. For example, it's not about cognitive maintenance, it's about cognitive development. Wow. And then exercise the exercise piece, for example. So um that was the first the real Reason. And then, secondly, I just needed models. I needed many models, as many models of people who are old. And I'm only 79. I mean, a lot of the people that I talk about are Wayne Tebow was 98 when he started a new body of work. Dan Pellman, I think his name is. Ran the fastest of anyone uh, to, I think it was a, a hundred-yard sprint um, at the age of uh, or anyone over a hundred to to run that fast. Um, so I needed a lot of models, and I found I found them.
1: You've already told us that you're approaching 80 years old. I'm 60 years old, and I'm deliberately using the phrase years old. This is something that you go into in your book. Sometimes I ask people, and I'm not shy about asking people their age on this podcast, (laughs) because this is a podcast about ageing and longevity and growing older. But the use of the word old, some people prefer to say, oh, no, I'm 79 years old young, because they feel as if they don't want to be associated with that word old. And that's something that you push back against, isn't it?
0: I think that that very well-meaning expression, I'm, you know, or you're, oh, you're 90 years young, is ageist. It's because, I mean, without intending to be, it's because we think young is good and old is bad. And I think that old is good i think young is good too but if you're young but i think that old is good and so yes i push back against that and i also like as you do i state my age you know fairly often i'm not constantly stating it but i state it fairly often because people in general tend to think historically have tended to think that i was younger than i am and i think that's because we think, we all do, this is not just, you know, other people, we all think that old is decrepit, and old is, even even in our subconscious minds, we think old is decrepit, and bent over, <laughs> and whatever. So I do try to push back against the sort of the toxic ageism that is um, infusing our culture. And
1: people don't just have those thoughts about the, the bent over old person, the to use that word, the decrepit old person. They're actually fed the images. We're all fed these yes. images of yes. older people from a very young age. And yes. for a lot of people, it influences them in terms of their attitude from that very young age.
0: And it's it's really destructive. And I think Becca Levy's work at the Yale School of Public Health is really interesting in which she has done studies which show that to have a ne- that type of negative view of aging actually causes you to live from a young age. It causes people who have negative views of aging from a young age live shorter lives. It hurts them. It harms them. And so ageism harms young people and, of course, old people.
1: And in a similar vein, another expression that through reading your book, you're not particularly keen on is senior moment. That phrase that is often used by people at actually varying ages in their lives. But as you get older, when you typically forget something where you've forgotten, you've put the keys or forgotten a date or forgotten a birthday, it is excused by saying you're having a senior moment, which again, you don't think it's a particularly positive use of words?
0: The phrase senior moment assumes that when you're old, you're forgetful. And the studies on this, this is why I wanted to really know what the, sci- the ongoing science is about all of this. The studies on this are, in the first place, in communities where elders are respected, the elders don't forget I mean, that's astonishing. Like in, in, uh, traditional Chinese communities in China, in the American deaf community, elders remember as well as anyone. So that's in itself very interesting. And then, um, secondly, we have, more information in our brains. So there was this study with a computer that simulated the human brain. And it was fed, this computer brain was fed more and more information. And the more information it was fed, the longer the computer took to come up with the the right memory, the right answer. And so this scientist, he said, I I believed in the dotage theory, but now I don't. So we have a lot of information. We have, you know, huge numbers of vocabulary words and huge numbers of names going back decades and decades. So if I forget a word, which I do sometimes, but I've always forgotten a word sometimes. It's not because I'm old. I think it's not because I'm old. It's because I've forgotten a word. One of my examples is, I have a native plant garden, which gives me a great deal of pleasure in my yard. And uh, I broke my leg in 2019, and I could not basically go into it for almost nine months because of the, ter- the uneven terrain that I couldn't walk correctly. So when I went back in, I forgot three of the names of the plants that I myself had planted. So I came back inside and I wrote down the names of all the plants that I could remember their names, which was 75. And so I figured, okay, I forgot three, but I remembered 75, which is actually a lot more than a lot of people <laughs> can remember. So so I just don't believe. And also, I really think that when we talk about senior moment all the time, we're harming ourselves it's a negative view of ourselves. And since I think it's basically false, we should drop it. We should drop that term. I
1: think that's really interesting. The, the fact that as people, as some people get older, the language they use about themselves is almost instinctively negative, yes. as if throughout their lives, they've been building up to this point that life will take a downturn, that things won't be as good, and then actually use that as an excuse uh-huh. for a situation or for a, a type of behaviour. I want to delve into that. But overwhelmingly, the theme of your book is a positive one. It is an optimistic one. It is a forward-looking attitude that you have. Before we get into that, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your life. I refer to the fact that you are a very prolific writer. You've written books on many different topics. Just give me a a kind of a quick potted history of what you've done that's brought you up to this point.
0: Well, I am a writer, I'm a poet, and um, I'm a science writer also, and I write Books. I write essays. I write memoir essays. I compose a poem every week. And so, what I've found, I, I mean, a, a, a dra- I should say a draft of a poem. It takes longer to get a real poem than a week, but right. it, it would take it... me
1: much longer than a week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, but I give it the good old try. I, I produce a, a uh, non embarrassing, I would call it, poem uh, every week to, to, ready to show. Um, <laughs> It's very important to me to um, do this creative work. Uh, my whole communities around most are, are are writers or poets, and not all, though, of course. But when I was, like, in my 20s and 30s, I worked full-time as a um, a printer. And I struggled to find time to write, but I did find time to write. And I think the turning point moment was... Back in the early 80s, I read a book called, I think it's called Becoming a Writer by Dorothea Brand, where she advises to write for 15 minutes a day, which seems like nothing. Well, that is not nothing. And that, ever since, I've written every day, uh, every day. Uh, I think the science writing, I did write a weekly science column for the American Scholar, which is, the columns are still up, the American Scholar website. That was just fascinating to do. Very, very time-consuming. I finally had to stop because I thought I would be losing my poetry if I kept on. Um, because each column, you know, it went from the Higgs boson to Mars to... Earthworms to how do birds fly? And so each one took me 30 to 40 hours to find out all the information, but it was great fun and I just loved doing it.
1: At the beginning of this project, did you have in your mind what you wanted to achieve from this book as you set out to research it and talk to people?
0: I needed to know what lies ahead here. It has really helped me. That was the first. I hope to help others. I hope to help. Everyone who reads this book and I hope that the people who read it are, are middle aged and younger as well as older, absolutely, because of how much it has helped me. For example, the exercise piece, you know, the science is so clear on that. I mean it's so clear. I was and I and here I'm speaking as a very non athletic person. So <laughs> I'm here to represent the non athletic persons. <laughs> As a child, I could never catch a ball. I just couldn't do it. As it turns out, it's because I don't have depth perception. (laughs) Ta-da! Very interesting. So the exercise piece persuaded me that I don't have to become an athlete. I don't have to jog marathons. Neither does anyone. But those 10,000 steps a day, I always do them now. I'm bonded to my Fitbit. And I do the 10,000 steps. I find it fun. I don't find it. And because I don't have death perception and I don't drive, I walk and I live in a place with very good public transportation, but I also walk a lot. And so I do that every day now. And I find it, um, very gratifying. I find it a nice time, a nice, you know, interlude walking from here to there to get either to the coffee shop where I sometimes do work or to the grocery store or wherever I'm going, I find it um, to be this interlude where, you know, you can look at the trees, the people, the cars, um, whatever. That has really changed for me because of writing this book.
1: This is the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Our guest is the author Priscilla Long. We're talking about her book Dancing with the Muse in Old Age. On this subject of activity, of movement, of walking, even for a non-athletic person, what was interesting to me in the book, and it's something that I've explored as well myself, and that is how everyday movement, it doesn't have to be, sometimes the term exercise is a put-off for a lot of people, the fact that you have to go out and, and run or go to a gym or play a sport, you don't have to do that, and I think that is crucial, and it perhaps needs spelling out for a lot of people that maybe just choosing to wash the dishes by hand rather than using the machine in the corner of the room will actually be helpful to you because it'll take you a little longer and it'll involve bodily movement.
0: Exactly. Yes, and 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 that is the other learning piece that uh to get up and go across the room. I mean, I'm a, I'm a writer and so and I don't write standing up. Some writers do write yeah. standing up, but I don't. But to get up and move around and to, you know, if you're trying to think of the next thing, get up and pace the floor. That's a good <laughs> way. Um or to do a lot of your own chores. Some people suggest, do your chores, you know, cleaning, mow the grass, walk down the street, take the stairs, all of that is just very helpful.
1: One thing that you say in the book is that there is nothing more vital to our well-being than a connection with others, yes. a connection with other people. Yes. And again, this this didn't come as a surprise to me because I, I, I've looked into this myself and talked to other people with that view. But I think it will come as a surprise to some people that as they look at their own health and perhaps analyse why they're not doing so good mm-hmm. at a certain age, that Social connections are so crucial. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, we're, we're social animals. One issue is, as we're growing older, is that people predecease us. This is a big deal. The older you get, and so it's very necessary to become proactive in finding connections. In the arts community, which is where I am, and, you know, a lot of people are in the arts community. It's a wonderful community. There are so many ways to make connections and so many different groups and different activities and so on. So I think the fact that at the older you get, the more of your old friends and family members are predeceasing you adds a complication to it, where, say, you're a college-age student in college, I mean... Connections come with the scene. I mean, it's hard, you know, you, you, that's what you do. You make new friends and you go to class together and you party together and whatever. But this is not so true as we get older. And we uh, also, if we change occupations or something like that, then we've lost a whole context. So it's very important to, to find new connections and to keep and also to cross the age lines to find connections with younger people older people all ages of people
1: i think that's really important and again i think it's something that a lot of people might not think about until they're in that position if they do enjoy longevity if they do enjoy getting to a great age that that is all very well but if you're doing better than all of the people around you who are, as you say predecease you who die before you do one of the big problems for older people is loneliness and yeah. clearly one of the big solutions to that is as you say is mixing with different generations and 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 starting that process as young in life as you can. Don't think about it when you get to 90, but try to yeah. apply that when you're 40, 50, 60 or 70.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, so a lot of middle-aged people, middle-aged, like I don't know, <laughs> don't ask me to define middle age, but right. middle-aged people are very busy. They're raising their kids. They have a job. Maybe they have two jobs. They're running a household and they really don't have time to go out and sort of socialize with people they don't know. So understood. But to just understand. Understand that what is going to happen is that your dear friends of your life are going to start predeceasing you. Now you're gonna maybe you'll predecease some of them, but this has happened to me. I mean, I'm only 79, and I've lost at least 15 people, not counting family members, old friends that I've known for many decades and that are dear friends of my life. And so that is going to happen. And we do need we are social beings, and we and we need not only to, like, socialize in this, like, superficial way, but to really connect with people. And, in fact, that's one reason I tell my age, by the way, because to connect to people, what you're doing partly is you're revealing yourself, who you are. And if you're pretending to be 60 when you're actually 80, um, it means you weren't here in 1963 in the Civil Rights Movement (laughs) sitting in. (laughs) And I was. So things like that. So thought given to really connecting with people and who do you want to connect with? And where are these people? What social circle or social, you know, as a poet, oh, there's like, 17 venues, I could go and read my poetry at the open mic and meet people. In every endeavor in life, there are circles of people doing that. There are knitting circles. (laughs) There are book circles.
1: I guess one of the challenges, therefore, for, if you want to use this word, influencers, people who, like you, can tell a a good story, one of the challenges is to get over the notion that you've just been describing to younger people. A, to encourage and nurture younger people in terms of their involvement with older generations, but also for younger people to appreciate the importance of just having multi-generational associations, whether it's people older than them or indeed younger than them. I think there is sometimes a resistance from younger generations to acknowledge that notion.
0: And I think some of it is that we need to spread around this knowledge about aging better because our society is so infused with toxic ageism that it affects us all. I mean, it's just not, it's impossible not to be affected by it. And it affects young people, many young people. I think young people who have wonderful grandparents are helped very much by that. Of course, you know, adolescents and even college students are very involved with the peer group, and that's perfectly, that's natural. But it's, yeah, it's very nurturing to find mentors and to find not only mentors, but people you could teach about something. I mean, there are young people that I could learn from about all kinds of things. I mean, the obvious one is the technology, but that's just one. Everyone has a fund of knowledge and information and things that they, that fascinate them that and perspectives and points of view that maybe I don't have. So it is fascinating to meet different people people from different walks of life, and that includes the intergenerational. You
1: use the phrase uh, toxic ageism. Do you think that as a, an issue to be aware of, that ageism is underrated? Oh, it totally we is. We hear about and appreciate the importance of understanding the, the negative implications of, of racism and of sexism and, and many other isms. But Ageism, I get the impression sometimes is one of those things that maybe people know what it means, but does, it doesn't really concern them too much.
0: Exactly. And I think that there's progress. You know, there are movements that that have made racism uh, more of an issue for people, like for white people, say, the civil rights movement. Now Black Lives Matter. I mean, there are movements that sort of have a message like this is how it feels to be in this position. And then people, some people, you know, learn that. And so, and there have, there has been a movement against ageism, but it hasn't like there, Maggie Kuhn, of course, and the Grey Panthers, but, and that she was, I guess, the pioneer, unless there's somebody else that I don't know about, but, but, uh, there needs to be a lot more. I mean, it needs to be a publicly, ongoing campaign of us personally to tell people the science of it, as well as, come on, <laughs> you know, let's not be like Mark Zuckerberg, who said, young people are just smarter. Right. You know, really, that's just so obnoxious. But it's also just not true. It's bad science.
1: Couldn't agree more. It certainly <laughs> isn't true. One issue that you uh, write about in, in the book that really fascinates me is retirement. Oh. And you... You write about both the positive and negative implications of people who are forced to retire. Yeah. Whether on the one hand, people feel liberated by the process of retiring and having a blank page in their diary the next day and and the world at their fingertips, whereas others, of course, react negatively to retirement, and it clearly seems not to suit them very well.
0: Well, I think that in the United States, I think forced retire, it's like forced is the key word here because forced retirement, um, is very destructive. And I, uh, talk about Ann Truett, the artist who was the sculptor who was forced to retire. That would be illegal now in the United States, but of course, across the world, it's, it is legal yeah. and usual, I think. So I think, that people should in my opinion (laughs) I mean I'm never going to retire I'm a writer (laughs) am I going to retire am I going to say oh okay I'm retired now no more poems
1: (laughs) I don't think so I don't think you are no I hope not
0: And plus I teach, you know, and teaching is very stimulating to me and very, it's hard work, but it's, I teach adult writers, um, developing professional writers. And it's just very stimulating to me. And in the way I teach, I, I give the assignments and I do the assignments that I give and give them, give my work to the other writers. I think if you have a, a a difficult, job that you've done I mean my sister just retired from she was an ICU nurse and that's a hard job and she was 70 this year and uh, of course covid made it even more difficult um and so she was happy to she lo- and she loved her work i have to say she and she was really good at it and that's like the most skilled nursing you can get this is the ICU, this is the intensive care nursing, and she retired, and she's having a wonderful time, and I think it was great that she did retire. Um, she's hiking, she's a bird person, she's, a, she's a, a gardener, and this is her first year, so we'll see. But I think you, you can either stay where you are and not retire, which is an option, or retire and then have what we call an encore career, a new mission, whether it's paid or not paid, a new mission, a new skill to learn, a new skill, a new, a new world.
1: And in terms of your world, we get the message, you are not planning to retire. <laughs> and I'm very happy to hear that. From what you learned yourself through writing this book, perhaps the things that surprised you or things that you hadn't realized before, how do you see the years ahead for you? How do you think about your own longevity?
0: Well, I think a lot about it, actually. <laughs> First of all, I plan to write 10 more books. No, no, I think, okay, is that too few? <laughs> I mean, I'm only 79. So, and I actually am not a fast writer, but I, I write several books at a time typically. So is 10, is the ambition to write 10 more books too modest? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question, but yes, we can control our fate. I mean, we could get run over by a truck, you know, this afternoon. Hopefully not.
1: Um, Hopefully not. Yes. Right.
0: But I hope to live a long time. And as I think a lot, most of us do in health, of course. And I at least plan to try to influence that by not only the exercise and how I eat and so on, but also to keep productive. And I think the big challenge in the creative arts is how do you be productive, but not repeat yourself? I mean, I've done so much. Not only I have the seven books, but also many, 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 many articles and poems and, and different other writing. Um, so how do I go forward and find new doors to open? not repeat myself, not just churn over the same old stuff, but go in new directions with new forms, new discoveries, and new ways of creating. I mean, that that's a big challenge for the older creator, I think. But that's how I see it, yeah. I mean, I live in a little house. Um, I love my little house, and I hope to stay here forever. And my when my nephew, I have a little nephew now, he's almost 40. <laughs> but anyway, uh, when he was um, quite small, um, he got he had this period of being very anxious about death. And, um, you know, he was like three or four. And I assured him, I said, don't worry, you know, I'm not going to die until I'm 103. So don't worry about it. <laughs> that's a long time from now. And um, so now I've changed that to 106. I think that's a good time I don't know so yeah I hope to live a long time and live in this house hopefully and and produce more work and connect with more people and connect with my work more and get to know people more and learn and learn learning the piece of learning is really important
1: Well, I think what you're doing is hugely inspiring. I think this book is excellent, and I really would recommend it to everyone. We've only just touched the surface in terms of the detail that you go into. Thank you. It is richly researched and and referenced. Uh, I I really enjoyed reading through the references, and it distracted me because I then went off and pursued some of those references. (laughs) It's that kind of book, so I really enjoyed that. And I, just based on what you've just said, look forward to reading at least another 10 from you in the coming Thank years. you.
0: <laughs> thank you so much.
1: Priscilla, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. And if you would like to read the book, I will put a, a link to it in the show notes for this episode Dancing with the Muse in Old Age. You'll find the details in the show notes for the Lama podcast at www.llamapodcast.com. This has been a Healthspan Media production. You can contact me at Peter Bowes. We're also at Lama podcast in social media. Thank you so much for listening.